I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, Credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, Consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program. Later on, we'll be speaking with Aaron A. Sack, a sociologist with a fascinating, thoughtful, and provocative book entitled The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality. But first... Mike Swanson of WallStreetWindow.com returns to the program to discuss with us such hot current issues as the declining market, inflation, and, of course, the cryptocurrency crash. Mike will also be talking with us about the Robinhood app, hucksterism in the world of the stock market, and much, much more. This is a conversation you're not going to want to miss, especially if you're keeping up with current events as they relate to the economy. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Mike Swanson of WallStreetWindow.com. 
Welcome back to Parallax Views, longtime friend of the show now, uh, Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window and also author of such books as The War State and Why the Vietnam War, which uh, everyone should pick up by this point if they haven't. Uh, Those are both really great books. How are you doing, Mike? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, Good to talk with you. So, Mike, I have not been able to keep uh, track of all this news with the stock market because I've been trying to cover my foreign policy beat along with a million other beats. What is going on? I mean, Tesla is is just in free fall. And then this whole cryptocurrency thing, what is happening right now? Well, um, it's, yeah, I've been trading and investing in the, in the market since the 90s. So I've seen two bear markets <laughs> in the stock market and bear markets in gold and silver and oil went in a bear market in 2014. And essentially the stock market, I believe is in a bear market. Uh, it's the S&P is down about 16% from where it began the year at, but more significantly, the way I determine whether something's in a bear market or not, isn't just if it's down, but there's an indicator called the 200 day moving average. Uh, it's the average price over 200 days. And usually when a market comes to that level, if it's in a bull market, it'll, it'll be a buying opportunity. But if it's a bear market, it trades below that level. And it's been the so market, a bear market basically just yeah. means a declining market, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and historically for the stock market, it can be like 25 to 30%. I mean, sometimes worse, it was worse than, 2008, it fell close to 50%. Uh, but what I think is, well, there's some one point I really want to make about what's really unique about the situation. But um, the way the, you know, we saw the stock market go up tremendously in 2020, uh, Bitcoin went up. Um, and then you heard of things such as NFTs, <laughs> uh, phrases like metaverse, which is a, to me, it's a concept uh, like the internet was supposed to, you know, did change things, but the way people talked about it in the 90s was, was really crazy. The metaverse is just an extreme version of that type of talk. Isn't it? Do you find it funny that uh, everyone is always uh, boosting these like, oh, the, the new technological era, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and meta. And it, it sort of reminds me of how triumphalist people were in the 90s about the internet before the dot com bubble burst. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's exactly uh, the the point I'm uh, the parallel I'm trying to draw. And there, there's a um, in the metaverse that's a good example for today because um, sort of what's going on and why the hype is necessary. <laughs> so so Facebook just to use it as it's you know, became one of the most popular stocks to own, went up tremendously. Obviously, a giant company, and but the growth for the company peaked a year ago. The number of users, it came out in January, they have to report earnings and they revealed that the number of users on Facebook actually declined uh, last year. And that's real important for stocks because people invest in these stocks on the idea that they're, they're going to grow, the earnings are going to grow, the revenue is going to grow, and that justifies prices going up. So you should buy and, and ride it. Uh, but when they revealed that, it, they, they, they said, our revenue's not growing. Our costs are actually going up. But Facebook um, changed its name to Metaverse ahead of this news they put out about six months ahead of it. 
And they did an intense propaganda campaign trying to say that uh, Jeff Zuckerberg is like a cool inventor. He likes to go surfing and he's he likes the metaverse. He, he's into technology and gaming. And at first- I think, I think you said Jeff Zuckerberg. I understand. Oh, Jeff why, Zuckerberg. But, no, no, Mark. Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg. Jeff, yeah, yeah. You're, you're mixing up Jeff Bezos. And also it's, I don't think the company is called Metaverse. It's just called Meta, but the Metaverse is like what they're yeah, selling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Go I, on. I'm... Yeah, they're all running together to me. <laughs> but, That's understandable. Billionaires gone wild, right? <laughs> but um, but anyway, when when they did this shift, they they had articles come out in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and so forth, saying that this is damage control because there are all these leaks about more negative stories about Facebook and the news feed how it you know hurts children and they don't care um and they have these negative stories over the years so on one hand this was being spun as a way to rebrand the company but i believe in hindsight what happened was they knew the growth was ending and they were going to present themselves and, and did as this concept company that the concept is metaverse and this is going to change. It's what they're saying. It's going to change the way you use the internet and everyone's going to use it. And it's just going to be the next big thing, such as we hear Bitcoin is the next big thing or this other coin and Peloton was going to be the next big thing. And now it's crashed. And, but it's, I think that kind of language is necessary uh, for these companies when they run out of growth, or if you have something such as a crypto coin that has no no earnings or anything, you, you, it's like a really hucksterism. You're trying to make this it, promise. It's like a carny trying to find his mark. You yeah, know, exactly. you got to find the mark that'll give you your money. <laughs> yeah, so so you got to. I mean, it's it's a entre, You know, there's this there's difference between being a a business person like running a a coffee shop or restaurant or a car lot even and being an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs easily can fall into hucksterism. And this kind of thing. So, what the when you look into the metaverse, though, I think it's uh, similar to 3D movie glasses <laughs> in the 1950s. You know, movie theaters are taking over. Television took over by 1963. Everyone owned a television set. I, I was going to say, even you know, the big thing when people are talking about all this metaverse stuff is wearing like the. The virtual reality goggles, right? So it is yeah, a lot yeah. like the 3D uh, movie glasses. But it was back then in the 50s, that was like a gimmick, you know, and everyone yeah. thought it would revolutionize it. But really, like, you know, 3D glasses kind of like came and went and then came back. And yeah, yeah. So that's what I think that's the comparison to metaverse. And I went and looked it up, and there's only 300,000 people even around the world using it. So it's just like whatever. But I'm I'm trying to suggest this is a one story that to, to use as a metaphor for a lot of what's going on in the stock market. Another one is uh, Beyond Meat is a company that they went public. The stock went to like 400. Wait, the company is called Beyond Meat or what? Beyond Meat. Beyond Meat. Okay. Uh, they're supposed to be making food in grocery stores. That's, um, you know, a meat substitute of, you know, veg through vegetarian food you know uh but the stock was red hot it's a concept you know we're going to replace meat with vegetarian grain or i don't i'm not really know what it is but or even gonna, maybe you know, like synthetic meats yeah, yeah. Ve vegan food that's 
made to be look like meat, look like hamburgers. But uh, so this was a red hot concept when the stock came out and I went and look, it's crashed. And they revealed earnings recently and they said that they made $190,000 of, of gross profit on $109 million in revenue. Well, that's such a small amount of profit. You know, $190,000. You know, a restaurant could make that money. A Walmart would make that money in profit in a month, probably. Just one single Walmart. And then did had it, and it took them 109 million in revenue to do that. Well, what's really crazy is the stock is that is valuing the company at one and a half billion. It's just an insane valuation, and and this is what the stock, a lot of the stock market became uh, over the past you know two years. So so now it's in a bear market because all these stocks have peaked out and they're falling, and and now crypto is crashing or has. Uh, so to me, this is, at least the stock market action is very similar to what I witnessed in, uh, in, in 2000 when the internet stock bubble peaked out. But now the bubble isn't like internet stocks, it's crypto and these sort of like concept companies, like I'm saying Beyond Meat is, uh, and there's, there's Peloton was, Zoom actually was a, treated as a concept stock, uh, like everyone's going to be using Zoom because in 2020 and, and they were, but the value, you know, the stock just went crazy and now it's one of the worst performing stocks in the entire stock market. The problem is when you get a decline, you know, like we saw start in January, people don't really pay attention to it until it picks up steam and starts to impact them. And then once you get like two thirds of it, which I think we're probably at, uh, you'll start to see, which is happening, things just blow up, you know, unusual stories. And this week, uh, there is some so-called stable coin that was supposed to be pegged to the value of the dollar, you know, always trade at a dollar, and now it's fallen and completely crashed. Uh, and that's affected the Bitcoin market too. But in the end, part of the phenomenon is also similar to the 90s and the 2000s when I started doing this there were all these day traders and I was basically one of them and there were day trading offices across the country and slowly as that bear market then happened these people just got taken out of the market they stopped trading they wiped out the day trading offices all vanished and what has happened this year so far uh, Robinhood reported earnings and they revealed in the first three months of this year, 10% of their customers uh, became what they call inactive traders, meaning they wiped out, they stopped trading, they lost money. Uh, so that I think that process is going on. We're starting, and if you can think back till Jan to January 2021, 14 months ago, GameStop, AMC went on this crazy short squeeze run. And that story hit the news cycle, and we were told this is the revolution of Robinhood traders. And, and I was going to say about that, <laughs> I, I remember there were people on both the left and the right yeah. that were kind of being like, "Oh, you know, this is this is great, blah blah,", blah. or they were at least saying, uh, uh, "You know, oh, this is against Wall Street, uh, Wall Street, and blah 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 blah." But really, like, 
I think now we're seeing the effects of Robin Hood because the people that are like getting left with the purse, are, you know, I mean, the people getting screwed are like the little guys that were, you know, going crazy on Robin Hood. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's exactly what's happening. And um, the I, I opened up an account with them just to see what it was like. And it's they encourage people they want they make money by having people do as many trades as they can they every time someone makes a trade they turn a profit or if you go on margin which means you borrow money from them to buy more stock <laughs> which is very risky you know you want to go borrow money to buy risky assets that's that's risky well when i opened up an account just to see what it was like i found that when you log in they give you lists of crypto coins to buy and, and lists of what other people in Robinhood are buying, which is tends to be very speculative and extremely risky. So they, they don't encourage people, they encourage people to get into extremely volatile uh, stocks or crypto coins. And by their nature, you know, going up and down, that's gonna make people, you know, make, become more active traders for them. And then another thing they do is, if you have the ability to get margin with them, they'll make it appear that if you do it, that you're not borrowing money, that you're just increasing the value of your account by the way it's by the way they word it. If you don't really understand what margin is and what you're doing, you can easily be tricked into thinking that it's safe behavior when it's risky. So it's just an awful misleading thing the way it's created. But one of the things, uh, one story that happened last week is in Oregon, some Robinhood trader lost a lot of money and got very angry about it and started making threats on social media against uh, the CEO and employees of Robinhood, like to threaten him physically. And he got arrested. And um, that is the sort of thing that started happen, happening in the 90s, you know, and with the day traders. There are a couple of there's a, a day trader that walked into a day trading office after he blew his money away and, and shot people. So, you know, it's a social, you know, it's it's a lot of pain and psychological pain is happening to people, but not just people that I would say engage in risky behaviors, but also regular investors uh, that aren't doing anything, you know, they just got retirement money. They're, they're losing money in the, in the, in, in this because, you know, it's a bear market and the stock market's fine. But one of the things that's different that I've never seen before um, and few people have that are, you know, investing or trading unless you're over 70 is that, um, interest rates are going up while this is happening and there's all this inflation. So since 1980, uh, interest rates historically were going down. And when interest rates go down, bonds go up in value. They trade, bond funds trade opposite to yield to the yields of the bonds. So when rates go down, bond yields go down, bonds go up and most investors have 30 to 50% of their money in bonds. And that's been a safe investment since 1980. And now it no longer is. And this is very troubling, you know. So so just to clarify, because I know you said that the, the people using Robinhood 
are engaging in like risky uh, speculation, but it doesn't sound like you're necessarily like, um, I, I've noticed your anger is not necessarily directed a lot of times at the users of Robinhood, but more so Robinhood itself. I just want to clarify that so people understand, like, I, I think you're coming from the perspective of, you know, Robinhood is kind of like encouraging people to engage in really risky behavior when they don't know what they're doing. Oh yeah, that's a, that's exactly what I'm trying to argue, uh, and they don't. You know, but it's going to it's it's wrecking actual lives now. Is is I think the important thing to know. Like this is doing real harm to actual living. Yeah, people. it's led people over a cliff, uh, and, and you know, I, I post on Twitter and fa- you know, that's not as often on Facebook on my personal page, but. You know, I, 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 I will post charts about the markets and what I'm thinking, but I, I also post attacks, quite frankly, on the people I blame for getting people into very risky investments. Uh, a couple CNBC personalities. Are, are we uh, talking about, who, who, can you name names? Yeah, people like uh, Kathy Wood, okay? She runs an investment fund called ARC, um, and just, well, I'll just describe what I think she's doing. Um, she, this was the red, a red hot, uh, fund for people to invest in and it's accumulated billions of dollars of investments. And she was buying extremely speculative stocks. So when the market was going up, these stocks would go up more. And she was saying, you know, these are all overvalued, crazy stocks and they're now all crashing. Zoom is one of them. Peloton's one of them. Just all this, all these crazy stocks, and she would argue that she would talk like a cult leader, and basically say, if you don't understand why these stocks are good buys, you don't understand the future like I do. And she's like an extreme version of some of the people in the nine, you know, cheerleading the internet bubble. Um, and it, it, it sort of reminds me of someone I had on the show before. It reminds me of like John McAfee being like, you have to get the Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She would talk like that. It still does, you know. It's just cheerleading, cheerleading. Don't ever think about the risks. And look, I'm someone that, you know, I've lost money in the markets, you know. So I don't want to go through that experience again. And I don't want to encourage other people to do it. So I see these people doing the opposite of what I think they should do. And then on the other hand, you have a whole other niche arena, which is the crypto world, where I think is some some of the people are even worse than her. Why is um, that? Well, you know, I saw crypto come out, and I was skeptic. I've always been a skeptic, so uh, you know, I, I saw it as something real speculative, like internet stocks. You know, that would one day crash, most likely. Um, I didn't, and, and you also don't need to buy everything that's trading, you know. So I, I just didn't really care about it one way or the other. But I, I, so to me, it's just something I'm just not paying huge attention to it. And then, um, you know, I get messages from people in it, you know, people want to argue about it. But a few weeks ago, I heard of a phrase that I never heard of before called Bitcoin maximalism. So I went to go look up what the world does that mean? <laughs> and from what I understand, uh, the Bitcoin maximalists 
they claim that crypto is a scam. Crypto coins are a scam, which is what I believe. However, they then assert that Bitcoin is not a crypto coin. <laughs> that Bitcoin is unique. I mean, to me, this is like, a, this is exactly how the classic Ponzi scheme promoters talk or someone at Amway. This is not a pyramid scheme. So Bitcoin is not a scam. It's not a crypto coin. This, well, this the, is not a scam. Everything else is a scam. <laughs> yeah. But but what, what's the crazy talk is that what they were saying was that what, what Bitcoin maximalist means is that if one day all crypto coins will collapse, Okay, they, and they are in the process of that. Uh, the U.S. dollar will collapse. All currencies will collapse except Bitcoin, and this. And they claim that because everything else in the world will collapse, the only thing that will be left is Bitcoin. And therefore, if you buy Bitcoin now, the day will one day come where the whole world will need your Bitcoins and you will be essentially a king. I mean, that's just like, it's the craziest thing I've heard. I have to wonder about all this because I'm pretty sure, now I, I could be getting this wrong, but I think like, yeah, El Salvador just lost like 38 million in the Bitcoin crash and are facing like potential default. So I guess you don't always become king. No, I mean, well, that's, I mean, there's gotta be a story about why the, why the ruler ruler i don't want to call him a president because he's more like become more like a dictator why he did that i mean there's got to be a story behind that but regardless um th th these are the extreme things going on you know as part of a bear market these things are all blowing up but for the regular person or everybody frankly what's really important isn't so much why this stuff's now falling or the individual story of Bitcoin, but why it all went up in the first place, why why these bubbles appeared. And, you know, just two arguments for that. One, and they're related, uh, but one is the classic, I would say libertarian type of argument, which I first learned, heard from Ron Paul uh, to explain the internet bubble. And that's that, well, interest rates are zero or too low. He would say they're artificially too, that's, they, they were zero in the 90s, but he'd say they're too low. So um, what's happening is investors don't have good places to put their money and therefore they're putting in speculative endeavors and hence the internet bubble appears. It's a giant bubble and, and it blows up and it all happened because interest rates were too low and the Fed made a mistake by keeping them too low. Now, what I, so I, I believe that argument, but there's another argument also worth exploring. And obviously interest rates went to zero and, and that helps stimulate all these bubbles we've seen. But another argument, and I think it's related, is that it's not simply that the Fed moves interest rates up or down, uh, but there's also a, if you believe, really believe in the free market, um, there's a demand for debt also. Uh, and if there's excess money or capital, because that's what's going on, capital is the money that goes to investments. 
if corporations and individuals just are creating all this, generating all this capital somehow themselves, then it's not simply that the Fed is lowering the rates, but it could also be that there's too much capital out there to find a place to go anyway. And therefore the demand, they, there's so much demand for debt that that's making the, the yields go down itself. Either way, the end result's the same. Uh, if when I look at the charts, you know, the <laughs> rates went to zero and the, every, the, the you know, the, the amount of capital, the system has just gone totally to the moon. Uh, and now it's all unwinding. And that process, inflation is also a result, I believe, not of the war in Ukraine. You know, it may contribute to it. But uh, do you mean because of the the spending? Like, I think they just put like 41 billion into aid to Ukraine. Will that lead to inflation? Because I've seen some people try to argue that. Well, I'd, I'd say it's just a drop in the bucket. You know, like um, the inflation was really going up um, last year, starting around February. Uh, the CPI went up, this official CPI, Consumer Price Index number. Uh, it started going up around February last year. Now, the Fed, Federal Reserve people, Treasury Department, Biden, they were saying at that time that it would come back down by the fall. And this is just temporary, so don't worry about it. Uh, I don't think they were lying. I think that's what they were hoping would happen. And then when the fall came, the rate of inflation ex- just continued going up. It went up to over 5%, I think, in September. Uh, it, it went to highs not seen since like 1982 or so at that time. So the and then it kept going higher and higher and higher. And then the Ukraine war happened and it went up again. So oil prices, for example, they began the year around $90 a barrel. And then when the Ukraine war happened, they just jumped up to 115. But they'd already gone up tremendously. So I'm trying to say that the causes of inflation were already there and the Ukraine war or additional spending now just are adding fuel to it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've seen th- this is an issue. I, I don't think inflation should be treated as like a uh, necessarily a Republican Democrat issue. And I see more and more people doing that now where uh, yeah, I've seen people say kind of glibly, oh, we can deal with the inflation. You know, the, the higher price of such and such is worth it because Ukraine or because this. And I'm like, Inflation does seem to impact um, actual, you know, people's lives, um, and I don't think people should be so. I think there are people that are too glib about that that aren't necessarily being affected by inflation right now. But I think if it continues, it, it could affect them more. Does does that? Do you think inflation that there's people that have been downplaying it recently? Oh, I I would say hundred uh, percent. I believe that. I'm, I mean. I think history proves that high rates of inflation are cause social and political instability. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about it. And the inflation now is as high as it was in the 1970s. It's just in the 1970s, you know, it was going on for about 12 years. Now it's only, you know, been one year of this, basically. So, if it continues on, 
and I think it will, unfortunately, then I just, you know, people will get angry about it. They're, they may not be that angry about it now, but also the stock market, I mean, is the same thing. I mean, well, I, I was going to say, I think there's people that are angry about it right now, but I think the people saying, oh, I'm not angry about inflation. I can deal with it. If, if that inflation gets worse, maybe eventually, like once a lot of people uh, don't think in terms of like, how is this affecting my neighbor's pocketbook? They're thinking about how it affects their pocketbook, right? Um, and, and then when it finally does affect their pocketbook, then they start getting angry. You see what I mean? Yeah, that's, that's true. That's a good point. That's a good point. But, but go on with uh, the, the stock market you said. Well, I mean, I, I, I get emails from all kinds of people. And I got an email from someone yesterday that is a regular, let's just, I'm not going to say they're doing risky things on Robin Hood. They're just a regular person, <laughs> to put it that way. But they sent me an email and they said they're down substantially this year in their retirement accounts. And they're, and they expressed a lot of anger to it. And then they said it's, they blamed it on world governments and corruption. Now that's a problem when there's lots of fun, you know, instability in the financial markets and people lose money or lots of inflation. A lot of people will look for scapegoats to blame it on. And it's not something that really can be blamed on, as you said, on one political party. Uh, you know, the Republicans are going to use this as a big issue to blame it all on Biden. But, you know, it, these are, and I can't no blame, one will on, blame Robin Hood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, these are, these are uh, underlying structural issues that really have no easy solution. And uh, that's that's the to me that's a real concerning thing. Before we close out, uh, just two more things. Um, off air, we had talked about where this is going to go going forward, how how things are going to unfold. And you said usually this sort of ends in panic selling. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh yeah, in the stock market it does. So that doesn't mean uh, like the end of the world or something, but there's different indicators you can watch to, to, to monitor the psychology of the people inside the stock market. So what tends to happen is a decline like we're seeing right now in is it, the bull markets and, and rallies, they're fueled by more and more people buying. The declines are the opposite. They're fueled by selling, more and more people selling. Now it's not just individuals, it, it's, it's insiders, CEOs, Elon Musk sold, I don't remember the exact figure, but it was 10% of Tesla last year. Uh, oh, really? His, That's the next thing I was going to ask yeah, you yeah. about was Tesla, but go on. Yeah, he sold 10% of his holdings a year ago. Amazon, Jeff Bezos sold a good portion too. Insiders sell, uh, hedge funds sell, institutions, big money sells. And, and the small trader is a, is a segment of the market too. But what they tend to do is continue to hold for as long as they can and then sell out and panic in the end. And the ones that are- active, You're talking about the small traders do that. Yeah, yeah, the Robinhood people or, or just average individual people. Um, now, in the, there's two interesting indicators you can watch to track the psychology. One is some people don't sell 
And instead, they'll take hedges, which frankly is what I've done myself. But instead of selling, there'll be a, a, a lot of people will put on these hedges right on the bottom, which is, you can see that in the people buy puts in the option market. So you can see this mass purchase of puts and it makes some weird gyrations of the value of these puts in the options market. That tends to happen on the bottom and hasn't happened yet. Another, another interesting indicator, which I've just started to follow over the past couple of months is Fidelity is, has a page where it shows you the number of uh, the top traded stocks and funds every single day. And it'll show you a ratio of buy to sell orders. So what's been going on is as the market's been falling, these fidelity traders have been buying. They're trying to buy the bottom and uh, across the board, like whatever's down the most that day tends to show up on the list. So they're not recognizing that it's a bear market and, and, and things are declining. They think, oh, it's gotta be the bottom. It's gotta be the bottom. So I believe that when the bottom, the, the, the panic selling bottom comes, that these people will all be sellers. So you, you can find this on Google. If you type Fidelity, top orders, it'll show up. So anyone can monitor that if they're, if they're interested in it. So, but that doesn't mean the stock market has to have this giant crash. I mean, it could fall, it could fall for a couple of weeks or months uh, and then just have one day where it's down 4% and there's all this going on. So I have to ask in closing here, uh, is there any, so there's obviously people getting hurt by uh, this stuff with Bitcoin or this stuff with Tesla. Are, are there any people benefiting uh, while the other people are getting screwed over, so to speak? Well, I mean, I mean, not, I don't think really, I mean, there would be a small number of people who shorted the stock market who foresaw this. And they might be making a lot of money, you know, like you saw in the big short movie. If people, if people watch that, they bet against the subprime mortgages. But they'd be a very tiny minority of people. So this is much more like structural than like, uh, it's not like a conspiracy. Yeah. No, no. I mean, this is just what was going to happen eventually. Now it's happening. It's, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's just. Is there anything you'd want to say in closing to people that, like want to do things like they want to use Robin hood because they, they think that's the only way they can get involved in stocks or like what I'm not asking you to give financial advice, but if people want to get involved in, in stocks, like what, what do they do? Because obviously Robin Hood's not the best way to go. Yeah. Well, I mean, the lure of Robin hood was you get free commissions, but now you can get free commissions from E-Trade. I think Fidelity, uh, Schwab. I mean, there's many brokers that give you free commissions, and they provide you more information. So the amount of information you get from using Robinhood is so small. I don't see how anyone can make any rational decision with it. So out of <laughs> the best thing they can do is avoid Robinhood, get another broker. But beyond that, um, I would suggest, you know, reading books about how the stock market works and educate yourself on that. Uh, there's a book called Stan Weinstein's Secrets to Profiting in Bull and Bear Markets. I'd read that to start with. 
Um, and, and it's an educational journey and process. So, that, I mean, that's, that's the, I mean, there's no magic bullet, but that's, it's a lot harder than people think. And so, so there isn't like a, <laughs> this isn't like a, you, you can't really get rich quick. This is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really the get rich thick quick thing is really an illusion. Uh, Cause what happens, I'll use the crypto market as an example, but you can apply this to the stock market, you know, over the past couple of years, I'm sure people have seen, as I have, people where they live, they'll post about some crypto coin went up, you know, to the moon. And, and it gives you the impression that, well, if I can just pick out a crypto coin like that, I can get rich. And people will promote these coins saying that, buy this one, it'll be the next one. And no one can, it's like buying a lottery ticket. The odds of you buying a stock, one stock, or a coin or anything and just being the right one that just happens to strike it rich is so small that it's that's just all an illusion <laughs> i mean if you buy 100 stocks maybe a couple will do it but that's you know that you know it's just that you can't get rich overnight if you do you'll lose it anyway you'll think you'll repeat it and lose it again <laughs> Well, hey, Mike Swanson, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, my listeners can go to what? WallStreetWindow.com, right? Yeah, yeah. Just go there. If you, I got a free email list. They want to subscribe to that. It's mostly to news headlines, but they'll, they'll, you know, I, they'll get my articles on there too. Next up, we're often told to follow our passion when it comes to seeking a career. But what if there's an insidious side to this advice? That is the argument of sociologist Aaron A. Seck's book, The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality. If you're wondering how she comes to that conclusion, you'll find out in the conversation to follow so, with that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with sociologist Aaron Seck, author of The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality. Welcome to Parallax Views. Aaron Seck, author of The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at work fosters inequality. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, JG. How are you? Good, good. So uh, before we get into the book itself, maybe you can give a little bit of background on uh, who you are and the work you do in sociology, as well as the interesting story of how you got into sociology. Excellent. Well, um, I am a sociologist who's really interested in cultural mechanisms of inequality reproduction. So specifically thinking about those things that on their surface seem objective or neutral, but might actually be really problematic in terms of um, uh, mechanisms that reproduce different kinds of inequality. And I uh, started out my educational journey in electrical engineering. I um, did my undergraduate uh, in engineering and was interested in issues of, um, of accessibility and technological inequality and found that my professors didn't know 
what to do with me in that context. They really uh, directed me toward gaining uh, empirical insight uh, and theoretical insight in other contexts. And so that led me to uh, pick up sociology as a major. And I, um, I followed my own passion into a graduate program in sociology. I was really interested in studying inequality in STEM broadly and engineering specifically. And um, I remember telling my parents directly that I was going to follow my passion into sociology. I would finish out my engineering degree, but I would um, that would be the path that I would take. Real, real quick, I have to ask, uh, who were you influenced by uh, when it came to different sociologists? Mm, my early, uh, I think early on uh, in my, um, my very early exposure to sociology, I was really captured by um, Herbert Marcuse's uh, understanding of um, the way that consumption was a tie into the kind of understanding that we have of exploitation that started with, with uh, Marxian theory. Um, but I was also interested in the work of um, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, who's a sociologist. Okay, yeah, we're, we're gonna get along great then because I yeah. really like Bourdieu and I wish I Great. wish more people knew about him outside of just uh, the academic context, but go on. Yes, yeah, so Bourdieu is fantastic in terms of saying, what does it mean to have, um, to have culture, cultural beliefs and practices lead to the forms of really durable material-based inequalities that we have in the social realm. And so that led me to think about um, the way that the things that we take for granted as um, positive or at least benign, especially in the context of kind of liberal egalitarian notions of, of equal treatment, the way that those things led to the reproduction of inequality. Would you be able to get into that a little more, that, that what you said, uh... The reproduction of inequities. What, what do we mean by that? Like, I don't, I, I have some listeners that uh, are just starting college that are learning about this all for the first time. So how, how would you explain uh, how inequality reproduces itself in ways that we may not really uh, consider at first? Absolutely. So if we look at the United States as, as a society, generally the assumption is um, anybody should be able to succeed as long as they have enough talent and drive. That's the idea called the meritocratic ideology. And that leads many people in the United States to believe that society is actually fair, that there that any kinds of differences we see in terms of um, differential access to higher education or uh, the ability to afford different kinds of homes in different kinds of neighborhoods is a result of people trying hard or not or wanting things or not. But we know that there is um, there's histories of oppression and slavery and segregation and um, uh, devaluation that lead to both historical patterns of inequality uh, and, and differential um, opportunities, but also contemporary ones, things like bias and, and segregation. And so when we think about the things that reproduce those patterns of disadvantage we see, so, you know, people across race ethnicities occupying different um, different levels of economic strata or gender segregation across occupations, um, one of the things that leads to that are overt 
processes of, of bias and discrimination. So somebody being discriminated against because of their gender, because of their race or ethnicity. And what I'm interested in are those things that um, kind of fly under the radar of those senses of biases, things that like, when you look at them don't seem so bad or actually seem really positive, but can be really powerful forces reproducing inequality. And one example of that that I study in, in other research is the very idea of the meritocratic ideology. So the very idea that we- The, the very idea that, uh, not to interrupt you, but it, it's almost summed up in that uh, idea of, well, you just have to work harder, you know, just exactly. work harder. <laughs> yeah. Right, if that is your frame of reference for understanding the different different patterns of, of, of access to social goods and material goods in society, then that is a mechanism of itself because it doesn't lead to any desire for change. Like if that's the way that reality is, then why do we need policies that increase opportunity and you know get rid of, of segregation and things? So then you said that you pursued your passion by getting into sociology, which makes this book interesting because you're arguing that there's a bit of a problem with how we look at careers in this sense of, well, do what you're passionate about. So Maybe you could describe how you came uh, to dealing with the trouble with passion and writing this book uh, because you yourself followed your passion. Exactly. Um, I was a fast passion evangelist before uh, doing this research. Certainly, I, I told my share of undergraduate students to pursue their passion and um, really uh, fervently was behind this idea that um, that if you're going to uh, invest your time in the paid workforce, it should be in something that aligns with your sense of self and you find sort of personally fulfilling. And uh, I wouldn't have, I think, changed that perspective had I not uh, just encountered it so forcefully in the data. So I was doing a research project that was seeking to understand um, gender segregation in occupations. So why we see um, uh, some occupations that are dominated by men, some occupations that are dominated by women, sort of trying to under understand how people go about making decisions about the career path that they were following. And I found interestingly that um, although men and women tended to be sort of passionate about different topics, different subjects, this narrative of passion kept coming up over and over in my interviews and I thought this this has to be have been dealt with in the the, the literature before and I did a very thorough lit search and it hadn't really been addressed the the way that most uh, scholarship in sociology in economics etc think about and theorize the way that people make career decisions is that they just want to pursue their they want to find the most economically, a uh, viable field possible and they make that their priority and that was not at all what the data of these college students were telling me so um, that made me step back and say what does it mean for inequality was it what does it mean for the normative relationships to work and the the demands of us as as, as workers in the paid workforce that people are saying I want to find work that aligns with my deepest senses of self and I'm willing to invest time and energy and free time uh, into this participation of the paid workforce. So you said that you were at one point an evangelist for what we're going to get into here soon, uh, the passion principle. But before we get into what the passion principle is, were you evangelized to 
uh, is it, how did you end up adopting this sort of uh, original stance that you had of, oh, uh, be passionate about something and then pursue that? You know, that's a good question. I don't know that I could pinpoint it. And I think that's that's part of what I talk about in the book in that this is a cultural narrative that is overdetermined, meaning that even if you have criticism of it or you have somebody in your life that is critical of this idea, there's so many other places that really promote it as a matter of course. I open the book. We're immersed in it. Yeah, you're immersed in it. It's everywhere. I opened the book with this um, description of a uh, commence or a graduation speech that Steve Jobs gave that essentially says the same thing, like find the thing that you love. That's the best way to be uh, a worker. So then what is the concept that you use here, the passion principle? Mm -hmm. The passion principle is the cultural idea that the best way to make career decisions for the college educated, but for workers in general, in some ways, is to find the substantive uh, uh, field that aligns most closely with our sense of identity and what we find fulfilling, even if that means uh, 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 deprioritizing or sacrifices, sa sacrificing things like good wages or um, more stable employment. And then could you give some concrete examples of the passion principle that you came across. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the context of my book, I interviewed 100 college students and followed a number of them over the course of their, uh, their, their time in college and into the workforce. And I heard stories like people who would um, start off so there was there was one particular student who started off in accounting and really won and and decided that accounting was the best career path for her because she really wanted to have work that she thought would be stable and have uh that would be decently paying as she went through her time in undergrad she realized that accounting wasn't her passion she was switched to be in broadcast journalism and ended up and having that as her path it took her um, quite a few years to be able to apply successfully to a master's program in public broadcasting and then eventually then to find work in uh, in in, in uh, broadcasting down the line, but she was somebody who kind of switched to follow her passion. Another example is somebody who um, graduated and had uh, this really prestigious um, postdoctoral or, or a, a pre med fellowship. So these are kind of like uh, programs that are meant to give students the skills to be able to apply successfully to medical schools. So she was in this this pre-med pre fellowship, very prestigious, had a really high success rate in terms of getting into medical school, realized two weeks into it, medicine wasn't her passion, left it, and um, went to do an unpaid internship at a video uh, online video production company for uh, six months, expecting that that would turn into some kind of uh, long term job down the line and it didn't so she was an ending up doing kind of contract work. But those are two stories choosing two examples of people who went from things that were more stable into things that were less stable and that's kind of the narrative we think about when we think about passion seeking, but it certainly can op operate the opposite as well, so there were examples where people said, you know, I went into. Um, uh, something like English and decided that wasn't the passion I thought it was, but I was always really interested in chemistry. So I switched to be a chemical engineer instead. It's just really sort of this drive to kind of follow one's sense of interest and uh, self-expression in one's career decision-making. 
So do we have an idea of how we sort of arrived at this point where this idea of, uh, well, your career should be based on what you're passionate about. When did that start to take hold uh, culturally, really? Like, it, it seems like it wasn't always uh, the, the main focus. A lot of people uh, in the past may have thought, well, I'm going to pursue uh, what's best economically for me if I want to have a family or, or, or things of that nature. So how did we sort of get to this uh, sort of passion principle being so prevalent within society? Right. So I write about uh, the, these analyses that I did of career advice books over the last 70 years. And what's so interesting is we don't see this kind of narrative around passion seeking and self-expression and work until about uh, the 1970s. And then it really gets kicked into gear. We see um, the book, uh, uh, the, What Color Is Your Parachute? come online, where there's a lot of interest and um, an investment in the sense of like, don't don't make career decisions for practical reasons, kind of follow your heart. And that comes to, so, so the we see the, the kind of exponential growth in the popularity of the passion principle around the early 1980s, and then kind of is exploded from there. And that aligns very nicely with two um, intersecting uh, cultural and economic processes. So one is this change in precarity and growth and precarity of the white collar workforce in the 70s and beyond. That is tied to things like globalization, deregulation, deunionization. And it's the sense that um, similar to the way that blue collar work and service sector workers have always had a kind of precarity to their work. They couldn't always count on having a job day to day or week to week. All of a sudden, white collar workers who for decades, for generations, thought that if they entered a company that as long as they did decently well, they would be able to stay with that company and sort of rise up the ranks. All of a sudden, they were um, fraught with the same kind of precarity as everybody else in the labor force. And so in other words, they could, uh, you know, it's it's like that whole concept that uh, Sigmund Bauman had about liquid modernity, like at any second you can start drowning, you know, uh, or falling into the quicksand. Exactly. So there weren't there weren't jobs that where some was on solid ground and some were on quicksand. Everything is becoming on quicksand. And so you might expect that there could be a couple of ways that people could respond to that in the labor force. One could be that everybody marshal as much cultural and social capital as they possibly can and find the most stable, the most decently paying job they can get with their own training. That's not the cultural narrative that happened. Instead, the response was, where can I find, if I'm going to be working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, and I'm not guaranteed any kind of stability anyway, I might as well find the thing that I find most interesting and self-expressive. And the reason that that became something that was a primary cultural importance is the second cultural economic piece that aligned with it at the same time. And that is the rise of um, individualism and self-expression, um, particularly in the 90s and on, but even before that as well. So you have growing precarity, increase in expectation for self-expression that really led to workers seeing following their passion as a rational response to the economic and cultural circumstances they found themselves in. Could you talk about uh, that a little bit more, the, the 
sort of rise of uh, self-expression and that sort of individualistic streak that I think came out of the 1990s and also maybe how we got there because I was interested in in the overlap between the rise of the passion principle and maybe the rise of, and I hate using this term because it's so nebulous, but you know, the, the idea of uh, neoliberalism. And uh, also like, you know, in, in the eighties we had uh, things like Reagan going after, you know, the, the air traffic controllers and a lot of breaking down of um, organized labor. So how does that play into all of this? It is all very interconnected, I think. And this is, um, I will I will leave it to uh, others who are more uh, cultural or um, historical sociologists to be able to articulate that in great detail. But what's really happening with the rise of 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 passion oriented responses to the existing labor force is in part tied to um, the expectation that every realm of life, every institution we engage in allows us to act self-expressively. And um, Ron Englehart um, was a, a sociologist or a, 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 a social scientist here at the University of Michigan um, who passed away uh, relatively recently, who traced the growth in this, not only in the United States, but in many post-industrial societies as well. And it tracks very nicely along with the growth in neoliberal beliefs in personal responsibility and um, uh, freeing up people to make whatever choices they want about their lives. And so it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg issue in terms of whether neoliberalism is driving the increase in uh, individualism or vice versa, but they track historically very closely together. And, you know, ultimately, the idea of, of passion seeking, of the passion principle, kind of only makes sense in the context of neoliberalism anyway, because you have to presume if you're giving advice to people or um, or to kind of thinking about it on your own, that, that passion seeking really only makes sense if you believe at least at some level that the labor market is fair and meritocratic and it's people's own responsibility to find their way through the labor market rather than relying on other uh, institutional uh, assistance. Now this, of course, in turn, I mean, obviously we're talking about how things have become more centered on, it's all about the individual and the choices that the individual is uh, going to make. And that shifts us away from looking at uh, structural problems. So in a way, the passion principle is actually structuring the way we think about the, the world we inhabit. Indeed, and I call this uh, in the book choice washing, and this is the sense that we take processes that ultimately are deeply structural and culturally determined and produced and explain them with the language of personal choice. So if we look at, for example, um, the uh, segregation by gender or by race in occupations uh, in the United States and many other places, a choice washing lens would say, well, that's there because people just choose to follow their passion and women and men are passionate about different things. And so that's what explains that. And we shouldn't do anything about that because people freely chose to follow their passion into those pathways. And so I, 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 I empirically connect people's attachment to the idea of following their passion with their alignment with beliefs about the world functioning meritocratically 
and beliefs in neoliberal senses of personal responsibility. And so people who, who are really tightly adherent to the pasture principle, who really believe in it, also really strongly believe in personal responsibility that's tied to neoliberalism. And so you have this like incredibly tightly uh, woven individualistic story of labor market inequalities, for example, that number one, the labor market is fair. Number two, people are able to follow their passion. And number three, the kinds of patterns we see in the labor force are just produced by people following their passion. So that leads us into uh, the relationship between the passion principle and meaning making. Um, could you describe that a, a little bit? Because it's really fascinating how this whole principle sort of, as I said, it, it structures the way we think about so much, including uh, how we make sense of our own selves and our identities. Right. So this is tying into um, some work by Anthony Giddens, and, and Anthony Giddens was a was a theorist of um, of modernity and postmodernity, and had a concept called the the self reflexive project. And this is the notion that that in many post industrial postmodern societies, that instead of thinking about ourselves as part of a community, as part of a family, as part of um, a broader um, uh, organization that is outside of the labor force, we come to anchor our sense of identity firmly in this development of a sense of self, an idiosyncratic sense of self that we develop over the course of our lives and we kind of refine it and tweak it and make sense of it. So we have some kind of coherent narrative over the course of our lives. And when people are situated in this position of saying, well, what's my self-reflective project going to be about? Instead of those things that maybe have been in our parents' or grandparents' generation available to us for, for finding that meaning, maybe faith-based organizations or, um, or community-based organizations, et cetera, we don't have those things to the same extent anymore. They're not as emphasized as, as fully. I was just going to add to that. So it, it sounds like some of this may have been like what Giddens is talking about almost becomes inevitable as you see this sort of decline in, you know, community type organizations like fraternities and, and things of that nature. And we move towards a more, I would say, atomizing sort of society where you know, meaning is derived more from the self than from uh, community. Yeah, precisely. And so that raises a big question of, of what vector along which am I going to live my life and find my meaning? And the passion principle is a ready-made answer to how am I going to live my life? Where am I going to find the meaning in my life? And we see that, I think, no more clearly than in um, the question that we ask of children, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that question seems benign, but we are expecting an occupation as the answer. We are expecting them to tell us where in the paid workforce they are going to situate themselves. It, it's kind of, I was going to say really quickly, it's kind of crazy that we ask children that so young, if you actually think about it. It's like, how are they right. supposed to know when they're eight years old or whatever? <laughs> right, because, and that shows you how tightly connected we expect and believe one's place in the paid workforce is and should be to their sense of who they are. 
because we ask children that. It's a, it's a question that's asking who are you through the lens of who, how are you going to participate in the paid workforce? As opposed to other ways that we could, you know, form a, a sense of identity or meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to be a, a helpful neighbor. I want to be a kind friend. I want to be um, really good at improvis improvisational comedy. Like all those things are appropriate answers to who you want to be, but that's not what is intended with that question. So then, if this affects the way our identity is formed, what happens when the passion principle ends up failing us? Because I'm assuming that, you know, if someone pursues their passion and things don't work out, you know, they, they could start thinking more structurally or they could, you know, just blame themselves and be completely decimated in their sense of identity. That's what I tend to find is that instead of it reorienting them to the issues around um, the structure of work and the inequities in the structure of work, people who encountered structural obstacles, whether that be because of their class background and not having the safety nets and springboards that they need or encountering sexism or racism in the context of the labor force, they tend to say, I didn't put in the work, I didn't work hard enough. Um, and that is devastating, not only because it blames, they're blaming themselves and buying into a kind of neoliberal understanding of uh, the, the, the labor force, but also, um, it can feel particularly devastating to not have that thing available to them anymore. I think this is so clear in academic graduate programs where if you look at the kinds of narratives that people articulate when they're applying to graduate school, they are often inevitably articulations of the passion principle. I am passionate about chemistry. I am passionate about evolutionary biology, therefore, and you know, uh, let me into your program. And so there's a lot of reasons why um, folks who are in graduate school don't finish their graduate degree or um, pursue other paths outside of academia. Um, and when that happens, because they've been expected to perform passion for the work that they do um, and have it be such a part of their identity, and frankly, we just don't give graduate students time to do anything else besides graduate education anyway, uh, there is this often sense, there's often a hole in a sense of who am I outside of my existence within this particular profession that can be quite devastating. So that leads me into something interesting. This also trickles down to non-white color jobs in a way. I mean, I, I think of, uh, you know, the, the person that's having to act overly enthusiastic, uh, you know, maybe working as a barista at, at um, you know, Starbucks or something. And I'm, I'm always, you know, annoyed because I'm like, what, why do they have to tell these, you know, workers that they, they, they don't just have to be enthusiastic. They have to be 110% enthusiastic. It's not enough to be 100%. No, you have to be 120% enthusiastic. It's like, well, I mean, you're changing the minimum then. Like what? Uh. Exactly. So it's, it's a, 
it's it's particularly pernicious because it's not just an expectation of like being being polite to the customer and being enthusiastic, but a performance of the work that's being done as though it was an extension of their sense of identity. And uh, so the the theorist Arlie Hochschild um, decades ago put out this idea of emotional labor, and I think this is something that has has come into popular conversation relatively easily that that in many service sector jobs it's not just that you do the work of like serving people their drink on an airplane but you are kind and and friendly even when they're being mean to you and this is a different kind of expectation and frankly exploitation that is laid on top of that emotional labor in that the expectation that not only are they engaging in this emotional labor but they're doing so in a way that that is uh, an expression of their deepest sense of identity and self-fulfillment that i am making a latte for you and i'm nice to you but also lattes are a big part of my identity <laughs> so making it is an expression of my sense of self that that sounds like it's like a horror movie to me like <laughs> that our identity has to be no I, i'm doing this because i love lattes like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the expectation and in, 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 in not not all a context in all cases, but that is that is a deeply different kind of demand on service workers than just be friendly and polite to the people who come in the store. So then what do you consider some of the key empirical data points that came out of your studying uh, this topic of the passion principle? Sure. So um, I find that the passion principle reproduces inequality in a couple of ways. One, I think, is the most straightforward one, and that's the reproduction of class inequality. So I find that there is relatively little variation in the attachment that college students have to the idea of pursuing their passion after college across class lines. So most middle class, most working class, most upper class students really desire to find work that they're passionate about. But the ability to access jobs that are decently paying and stable and in one's passion differs starkly by class. And that's because in order to get work in one's passion, kind of regardless of what you major in, often requires safety nets, financial safety nets of being able to pay your rent while you're trying to find a job that aligns with your passion or maybe take unpaid internships uh, that help give you a leg up into your uh, field of employment. But then also uh, springboards, things like social capital or um, um, uh, well, even even something I was going to say, even something as simple as, uh, you know, I've, I've known more well off uh, university students who their, their parents will, you know, pay for their rent. Um, and that's very different from the situation of someone that has to, you know, work an extra job or two to pay rent. Yeah, totally. I mean, you think about two aspiring journalism students, and they're both equally incredibly committed and competent, and they do wonderful work. They both get internships that are unpaid at the New York Times, right? Incredible opportunity for them to be able to take their career to the next level, get employment afterward. Somebody from wealthy family can lean on their parents or their family members to pay their rent while they take that unpaid internship and also then pay their tuition back home. The person who doesn't have that kind of uh, safety net 
probably would have to work over the summer, not take that paid internship, certainly couldn't do anything that had would take them out of having paid work over the course of the summer. And that diverts their ability to be uh, successful in landing a job in their passion um, after college. And so that's a big part of the finding is that although there's a general commitment to the idea of passion seeking among most college students I, I interviewed, the ability to translate that passion into gainful employment was really class related. Um, but then there's other ways in which the passion principle reproduces inequality. And one of them has to do with um, the way that 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 self-expression gets tied in to career decision making around passion. So uh, people tend to believe that our senses of identity are idiosyncratic. They are ours and ours alone. But like everything else about us and in our society, even our senses of identity and senses of self or social constructs. So when we make decisions that center our sense of self, whether that's in our occupations, whether that's in the activities we do for fun, where we want to live, what we, you know, what other ways we kind of consume. When we make those decisions, we tend to reinforce things like gender and race and class segregation and inequality because ourselves are gendered and racialized in class social constructs. So we then reproduce those, but they don't feel coercive. They don't feel racialized or gendered or classed. They feel self-expressive. And so there's again, this way in which there's a, there's a mechanism of inequality reproduction that doesn't seem like it's inequality reproduction. It seems individualistic. And then the final piece that I'll mention is uh, based on survey a, a survey experiment that I ran, and I was interested in whether potential um, potential employers of passionate workers not only preferred passionate workers over workers motivated by other things like career advancement, um, and whether they they willingly saw the potential to exploit people's passion in their work. And what I found is that passionate applicants to jobs were not, and, and this is all in an experimental setup, passionate applicants to jobs were not only preferred by uh, college educated workers uh, because they would, they're assumed to be harder workers, but because they would be willing to put in more work without an increase in pay. So, so, so in other words, that there is there. Real quick, I was going to say, so in other words, you know, you have two applicants, one says, oh, I'm interested in, uh, advancing my career, et cetera, et cetera. The other says, oh, I'm just really passionate. Uh, you know, the employer may think to themselves, well, you know, with this person that says they're really passionate, maybe I can get them to work an extra few hours from home on their computer. And uh, maybe the other person won't because they value that time. Exactly. And they don't offer them any higher salary. There's no, there's no premium. There's no bonus for being passionate. And in the labor force in general, outside of the experimental context, we do find that people who are passionate about their work put in more time and effort to their jobs, but don't have higher pay. Now, we've talked about the negatives. Are there any positives to the passion principle? Is there anything empirically saying, well, you know, these people that took a career in something that they were really passionate about, they're happier in this aspect, but then maybe on the other hand, they're they're not happier in another aspect. Uh, so there is there is research that shows that um, people who are passionate about their jobs 
are have generally better job satisfaction than people who aren't passionate about their jobs. But the problem with that is it presumes a um, false comparison because we don't know whether the people who are passionate about their jobs would be just as happy if they had jobs where they only worked 30 or 40 hours a week to be able to support meaning making and things that interested them outside of work. So it's a little, it's it's difficult to kind of compare um, individuals even within the same occupations because of the way that occupational choices tend to pan out. The reason that, um, that the passion principle seems like such a rational decision making processes is because in order to change it, it will require structural and collective efforts to change. And so individuals who are looking to say, how do I manage the expectation for overwork and work devotion? Well, I don't have a whole lot of tools available to me to make these structural changes as an individual, so I might as well follow my passion. In other words, well, if, if I'm going to be completely uh, you know, wiped out by, by my employer, I might as well do, be doing it with something I love. Right. Right, exactly. So before we start wrapping up here, does any of this differ based on uh, certain factors and, and demographics? So like, would the way that people respond to the passion principle, either accepting it or rejecting it, would it differ, say, if they just started a family or if they're in a different age bracket, old versus young, uh, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So I expected a lot more variation in adherence to the pasture principle when I first started this work. Um, I expected there to be big differences by class, uh, racial ethic differences, gender differences, age differences. And I found that there were there was some slight variation. So um, uh, African-American and Asian uh, college educated workers are slightly less likely than white workers to adhere to the passion principle. Uh, and those um, those who are from uh, lower class SES or, or socioeconomic backgrounds are slightly less likely than those from more um, uh, more well off backgrounds to adhere to the passion principle. But that is a matter of degree, not a matter of adherence or not. We see I see across socioeconomic and demographic categories about a third to uh, a, 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 sorry, about uh, two thirds to three quarters of individuals um, highly value passion seeking as a career decision making uh, 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 mechanism. You know, it's interesting while we're talking about this, I keep thinking and I know this is completely unrelated, but I, I have a way of tying it. In. I keep thinking about um, a documentary that came out, uh, I had to have been just starting college at the time, uh, but it was sort of a new agey documentary called The Secret. Uh, and I don't know any sociologist that likes it and I don't like it either. Uh, but, you know, that the whole idea was, uh, oh, everything is about, you know, just be positive, you know, positive thinking. And I would always get so mad is I would say to people that believed in that, I'm like, well, go tell that to someone who like, you know, lives in, in destitution or poverty or, you know, uh, has to work really hard to make ends meet. And it, that always reminded me of this like ideology where people would say, well, just work harder, just work harder. It, it's such a, you know, it, it messes with my head. That there's so many people that think, oh, if you're just positive and passionate and you work harder, everything will work out because th that doesn't seem realistic at all. Right. It does two things for the people who tend to believe in it. One is it 
um, justifies their own position as the result of their own hard work and effort, rather than, you know, benefits they might have received because of their social position. And it also absolves them of any um, expectation that they do anything to anything about it, that they help to resolve it or help address it in any kind of way. It, it is a um, first and foremost, a, uh, a platform for the uh, the the strengthening of of privilege and the lack of people's ability to confront their own privilege. So then, how would you tie uh, your work with the trouble with passion into some of the other work you've done in your other areas of interest? Because I, I looked at your um your web bio and you have a, a lot of uh, different areas of interest from gender inequality to a number of other topics. Mm -hmm. My approach for thinking about research in the social world is, as I as I talked about in the beginning, to look at those things that we tend to hold dear uh, or we take for granted as 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 positives, because um, it's not just the things that are overtly and obviously negative bias, discrimination that help to support structures of inequality. So there's this notion in physics of the missing masses that um, in order to explain um, uh, the way that the cosmos operates, that there's some there's some mass out there that we can't find that we can't identify that isn't taken up with sort of planets and black holes and things. And to me, the missing masses of the incredible sticking power of inequalities in society have to do more so with the things that we don't see as problematic than the things that we see as obviously sexist and racist and heteronormative. And so it's my goal as a sociologist to find those, understand how they operate and be able to provide opportunities and uh, alternatives to think around them. So just two more things I wanted to touch upon here. The first is, has there been any pushback on the passion principle by, say, life coach, coaches or uh, career guidance counselors? And I, I kind of know the answer to all that uh, because I've looked over the book and the answer would seem to be no, but I want to delve into why that is. <laughs> so um, uh, not yet, potentially. Uh, there has been, so so in the book, the process of the, of the course of the book, I interviewed um, career counselors and coaches in part because I wanted to get their sense. I wanted to see whether they had a stance of criticism or um, sort of alternative to the passion principle. And some did, but the majority didn't. The majority rearticulated this idea of, of passion seeking and, and actively encouraged the people that they advised to downplay money, downplay job security in order to, to, to follow So they passion. would even... They, they would even maybe tell some of the people they were guiding, well, you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't go in that direction, even if it would be more money because you're more passionate about this. Exactly. They would they would give them advice. And these are just, you know, a, 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 an uncle or an aunt that you go to to have a casual conversation. These are people who have been um, imbued with legitimacy in the context of the labor force as the site of advice giving, of validated advice giving. And so what they say really matters. And there's not everybody, and there's a lot of nuance in the context of career advising. Um, in fact, my, my partner Heidi 
uh, does some uh, career advising as a result of her own work. And so we often have these conversations about like, where is the line between encouraging people to make their work life better and this kind of blatant um, uh, encouragement of passion pursuit. So I think there has been a little bit of, of, of skepticism to be able to take, take the work in, but I try to uh, in the book really, uh, really carefully articulate why the advice that everybody should follow their passion is really fraught. So it's interesting. I want to talk about alternatives, but I also wanted to note when I, when I told another person that I was doing this interview and I tried explaining your book to them, they said, well, what's wrong with, with having work that you're, you're passionate about. And, you know, I mean, if we're going to be, you know, slaving away in life, regardless, because that's the way, things are right now. That's our current predicament. I might as well just do something I enjoy. How do you respond to people that sort of have that immediate knee-jerk reaction to what you're talking about when it comes to the trouble with passion? Sure. There's two pieces to that. One is um, you may very well be passionate about the work that you're doing, and that's that's great that you found space for that. But where else can you find meaning in your life? The labor force was not designed to help nurture our sense of identity. It was designed to help increase the the the, the profitability of the people who own the organizations we work for, right? So, um, in order to take that seriously, um, we should do what I say, what I call in the book, diversifying our meaning making portfolio, and that is like very conscientiously investing time and effort in uh, meaning making practices outside of our paid employment. And for people working 60, 70 hours a week, that's hard. You have to actively work at that, but it's important to do so so that you can anchor your sense of meaning in places outside of work as well. But more, I think more importantly, is that the that solving this issue, solving the problems of the passion principle requires collective solutions. The reason that we find the need to have work that we're passionate about is because work is so precarious and there's such a strong demand and expectation for overwork and work devotion. So if, if there are collective movements that can make work less precarious as well as um, less all intensive and all encompassing, that goes a long way to taking the, the, the need to follow our passion uh, out of play. For me, that's a key part of the book is the, the thing that I kept thinking about and coming back to when looking at your work on this was, you know, everything is so centered on the individual and the passion principle plays into that, that we don't look at, you know, one thing that we could do to change things is, uh, you know, organize the labor force and have more collective bargaining when it comes to our employers. Yes, exactly. I mean, all the things that 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 sociologists and other um, activists that are looking to to make work better for everyone have been uh, have been advocating for for decades. Work doesn't work for workers. It hasn't for a very long time, if ever. And so. Um, the solution is not this individual level, I'm going to pour my entire identity into the work that I am doing, but rather, how can I, how can I organize with others? How can I support collective bargaining and bargaining and collective um, communicative efforts to be able to push back on these things? And that can look like sort of typical um, unionizing work, typical collective action work, but it also can look 
look like something a little bit more local. So um, working with team members in one's organization to um, make, uh, make a coherent statement that's brought forward to managers about the importance of having more flexibility, having more time off, um, reduced expectation for work demand. And like I say to audiences that are a little bit more kind of like business or, or profit uh, margin oriented, the research tells us, um, other people's research, not the work that I've done in this book, that if workers have time to have a full night's rest, if they have the ability to find creative uh, releases or opportunities to do other work, they are They're more actually productive. more productive. They do better work in less time, right? They're healthier, like they're happier. All the things say that like less work is actually the solution to uh, to to these these issues in a lot of ways. Well, that was actually the last question I had was, you know, what are the possible alternatives? But you kind of work that in there. So uh, is there anything else you want to add in closing? You want to say to my listeners, uh, in case there is like the, the skeptic out there that's going to reel and say, ah, but, but passion uh, is, is great. What, what do you want to say in closing uh, to either those or even to the people that already agree with you, like myself? <laughs> <laughs> I would say, first of all, why, if, if the passion principle still feels like the best answer after our conversation, I would ask you to reflect on why, why that for you feels like the best solution for you and for others in your life and who are you whose whose positionality whose uh, opportunity structures are you misinterpreting or misunderstanding when you advise everyone to be able to follow their passion and in what ways might you be leading in that encouragement to people uh, pursuing opportunities that uh, might be might be difficult or problematic uh, for them down the line and then lastly this is an opportunity to reassess our own relationships to paid employment. Um, this issue of, you know, asking what you want to be when you grow up is not something that we just ask young people. It's something that people ask themselves all the time and use that as an answer to recalibrate their lives. And this book is an invitation and an encouragement to stop and ask what other ways can I find meaning in my life? What other opportunities do I have to build the full sense of self that I want to and that I'm expected to that exist far outside of uh, my paid work? Last thing, because it, it just popped into my head. Uh, when it comes to this idea of the passion principle, I, I had mentioned earlier my disdain for that new agey documentary, uh, the, the Secret. And um, I've kind of lightened on that a little because I understand why people want to believe in, in something like that, because in a way it's, it's oddly comforting. Like, Oh, if, if I'm just positive, you know uh, you know, things will work out, you know, or they think, Oh, I guess I wasn't positive. There's a certain comfort to that. And maybe there's a certain comfort people have in saying, Oh, if I just work hard enough, or if I work harder, uh, maybe there's a certain comfort people gain from that. Uh, do you think that's part of why, the passion principle has been so, you know, thoroughly permeating our society? I do think so. So, so psychological literature would tell us that our sense of control over our lives and our environment are really important to general psychological and mental health. And that if we don't feel like we have control over our lives and the things in our lives, that can lead to a lot of, of stress and anxiety and depression. And so 
believing that the labor force um, is will bend at our will if we if we only work harder can in the short term seem like a way to a positive sense of self, positive uh, um, uh, self-esteem, self-efficacy, um, et cetera. But in the long term, if that doesn't end up being, if that doesn't end up leading to the kind of success that somebody is looking at, it can feel far more devastating to have to have failed and blame oneself only. So the inverse of that, of that frame, that I failed because I didn't work hard enough or I don't have what it takes, I think is very psychologically and mental health damaging uh, in a way that I think leads us all the need to, to reflect on the ways that our own positionality as well as the positionality of others who may have more or less uh, privilege than we do is heavily determined by the structures and cultures in which we are embedded. Well, I wanna thank you again, Aaron Seck, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? I don't know if you're on social media or anything like that, but if you are, let my listeners know how they can keep up. And also, uh, I don't like promoting like uh, Amazon or anything, but I would suggest that listeners uh, get the book from their you know favorite local independent bookstore. Exactly. It is available on um, all online booksellers, both in um, uh, in electronic form as well as in paperback and hardback. Again, the title of the book is The Trouble with Passion. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at SecAaron, so C-E-C-H-E-R-I-N. My website is AaronASec.com. I post all, all my uh, research and updates there. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Aaron Seck and Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. Be sure to check out Aaron's book, The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can find all the information for how you can make a monthly donation to my show on the Patreon website. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.
I'm not afraid.